Heavenly Father, we come in Jesus' name. And we are with hearts rejoicing and giving thanks to you that you have sent your Son into the world to save sinners like us. And that, Lord Jesus, you accomplished that great work of redemption in your body as you hung on the cross. And as we have read today, the glorious bodily resurrection of our Savior and, Lord, your ascension into heaven is where we have placed our hope as your people. Because as a living and risen Savior, we have such a one who is interceding for us before the Father. And we have one who is an advocate before our Father, even by the accuser of the brethren. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that indwells us and enables us to live and walk in newness of life because of your great work, Lord. And so we pray that as we look into this, your holy word, that your spirit, the spirit of truth, would speak to the hearts of everyone here your words of truth. And may you be glorified, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. Amen. A lot of times we have been guilty of the fact that on this Resurrection Sunday, we sort of sanctify, if you will, the storyline of what is actually happening to the disciples when Jesus is resurrected from the dead. We must know and we must understand that for them in that first century time, this was a perilous time for them as followers of Jesus. And we are living today in perilous times where lines, if you will, are being drawn in rapid succession. Lines drawn over our national security. Lines being drawn about our freedom of speech. Lines are being drawn as to our constitutional rights as citizens of this nation. Lines are being drawn in regard to our right to a religious belief in God. Lines are being drawn in regard to an individual's ethical identity. Beloved, lines are being drawn. And you might say, how? Well, I have three articles here that revealed to me and should to you that the lines are very serious for us as believers today. The first one has to do with a professor in a secular university. And in that university, he was unwilling to take a person who was a biological male and use the female gender form in addressing him. He said that he would call him by name, his first or his last name, but he would not identify him in the way that he wanted to be identified. And what happens here is that he is publicly, from the institution itself, as well as from the press, being punished for doing so. 
This is in a secular university. The university formally charged him with creating a hostile work environment and placed a written warning in his personal file and threatened further corrective actions unless he articulated the university's ideological message. A second one that comes across our news that we need to realize that there are a dozen students that identify themselves as LGBTQ that have filed, get this, have filed a class action suit against whom? The U.S. Department of Education, hoping them that they will concede to the Equality Act that is being presented before the legislator and has been approved, by the way. This class action suit is against universities like Bob Jones University, Baylor University, Liberty University, where these students either are now or in the past have attended there. And the reason for this class action suit is because these particular institutions, though they be Christian, are receiving federal funding. And those federal funds to these Christian colleges and universities are the reason why they're following suit against the Department of Education. And in this process, what they're saying is that their civil rights have been violated because of the moral conduct um, outlines that these particular universities stand for. And because they were violated, they are following suit, filing suit. The third one is even more egregious in my mind, if these are not enough. This is one that was written by Albert Moeller, who is the president of Southern Seminary. He is commenting on an article that was written in the USA Today sports section. What did the article, how's it entitled? For the win. You might think it's about a sports event. This article, though, as he says, will knock you off your feet. It is an outright attack on biblical commitments and a public call for the NCAA, which is basketball, to eliminate Christian schools from postseason play and even more from membership. Why? It is because the person who wrote this article believes that indeed the Christian university that's being targeted, which happens to be Oral Roberts University, that the team, though it has earned the right to go into the tournament of the NCAA and has defeated Ohio State and the University of Florida in advancing in the Sweet 16, that they should no longer be allowed to play because of the fact of their particular position, which this writer says, these institutions apparently are bigoted, out of date, homophobic, president, uh, pre uh, 
traditional views on marriage and gender and sexuality should not be permitted in the NCAA. It is these sort of attacks, beloved, that are being foisted upon us that we need to realize that we cannot just be idle in this process. So where are we to stand? Do we take a stand? Or can we just stay in this sort of nebulized uh, middle ground, if you will, and not take a stand? And if we try to do so as Christians, what will be the impending outcome by those who do take the stand, who win the arguments, who gain the votes, who become the victors of the spoil? Most importantly, does God want us as his followers to take a stand on one side or on the other of these lines that are being drawn politically, culturally, socially, morally, all of these which are being foisted upon us? Well, some would point to the biblical teaching that though we're in the world, we're not of the world. But does this even verse suggest that we are to disengage from the world scene, to ignore these issues, these moral issues, to take a position of silence? I don't think so. Some, rightly so, contend that all these lines being drawn are splitting our nation apart. And they're asking the question, why can't we just all get along? It's almost like that recent bumper sticker of a person who lives off of my road where I live. The bumper sticker gives this impression through a lot of icons of religious faith. It basically says, we need to coexist. But let me ask you, folks, is peace at any price a real and lasting peace? Or is it just another plot, if you will, of preventing free speech, of surrendering our freedoms of religious belief, of relinquishing our freedoms of moral conviction, all under the guise, if you will, of totalitarianism? Yes, the Bible does tell us to be in the world and yet not of the world. But it also tells us very clearly that we need to stand firm in our faith. We need to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. We need to live for Christ by obeying God's Word. Which includes, beloved... The proliferation, the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to every creature and in making disciples of all nations. The Great Commission itself alone should cause us as true believers 
to realize that we need to take a side. And that's God's side. It was the Lord Jesus who said at the end of our reading in the Gospel of Matthew, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And it was him who earlier said in that same Gospel account, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. As the expression goes, if Jesus is not Lord of all, is he Lord at all? Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus Christ our Lord and the Lord of all? Or is he not? You see, our Lord has drawn the battle line a long time ago. And the lines that are being drawn today are lines of rebellion against the Lord. The Lord whom we say we serve. And we must stand on the Lord's side lest we fall away from the true and living faith that has been once and for all delivered to the saints. For our Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord and he's coming back again and he's going to judge the living and the dead. Therefore, let us stand firm on the right side and not the wrong side of history, which is his story. Let us combat alliances with the world that are fighting against our Lord. So how are we supposed to do this? Today, I think I have three principles that are come out of the passages that we looked at. Turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 14. Because I believe in this historical incident when Asa, as king of the southern tribes, lines up with the Lord that something very dramatically happens. We weren't able to read the earlier verses just for time. But Asa was one who was known as being good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. And so God blessed him and allowed him to have peace in his reign for most of his reign until this Ethiopian army came up that was twice the size of his own to fight against him. You see, what happens here is a very important point for each one of us. Because if Asa was not under the lordship of God, things would not have turned out the way they did. And we must be sure 
that we are fighting the Lord's battle and not our own. When we stand firm on the right side of his story, the reason for victory, as we'll see in Asa, is we are the Lord's. And the Lord is for us. Look at verse 11 here of chapter 14. What does Asa immediately do when this great army of opponents comes against him and his army? He turns to the Lord. King Asa learned this truth when he arrayed his army for battle against the Ethiopians. For in verse 11 we read, he calls on the Lord, saying, Lord, there is no one beside you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you and in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. It's the same thing that happened earlier in the Old Testament with Joshua. Do you remember after they were getting ready, they crossed the Jordan River and they're situated in the promised land? And Joshua has actually moved his, his force, if you will, uh, close to Jericho. And then in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, we read that he saw a man that was standing opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? He understood that there was opposing forces. He understood that he could not in any way compromise his position. And what does the man that he saw say to him? Verse 14, no, he says, rather I indeed come now as the captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Just as King Asa understood indeed that unless the Lord is fighting his battle with his army, there is no victory, there is no strength. So Joshua understands that though they've been able to miraculously cross the river Jordan by the Lord's hand, that indeed when it comes to sides, he must be on the Lord's side. Beloved, We need to hear what Azariah the prophet said to Asa even after he won the victory. He says this in 2 Chronicles 15, 2. Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, 
The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Second principle can be found in Matthew's gospel. Turn with me to Matthew 28. This is important. Not only do we need to make sure that we're fighting the Lord's battle and not our own, but we must know that the alliances of this world system will vehemently fight against the truth of God. And they will use tactics of extortion, of conspiracy, and of collaboration to malign God's truth and God's messengers. This is at the point of the resurrection. He is risen, right? He is risen indeed. But look how the world responds to it in verses 11 through 15. Now, while they were on their way, meaning the disciples up to Galilee, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears... We will win him over and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money, and they did as they were instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews to this very day. In other words, even in this inspired account, where the soldiers who were indeed watching over and protecting the tomb where Jesus' body is laid, they actually go to the religious leaders, the chief priests and the elders of the people, probably the Sanhedrin, and they tell them exactly in time and in space and in accuracy an eyewitness historical account of what occurred at the tomb when Jesus was resurrected. They supply, if you will, an honest account. And what do the chief priests and the elders do? They fight against it. Those same chief priests, those same elders who rejected Jesus and actually sent him to be crucified to death are so vehemently opposed to Jesus that they will devise tactics of extortion, conspiracy, and collaboration, even to the point of contriving a fabricated, alternated storyline in order to have their way. You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And then through coercion and pressure, They tell the soldiers to tell this story and give them a bribe to do it. 
so that they'll change the true version of what happened to this false narrative with the assurance that if it comes to the governor's ear, we will protect you. Sounds like our government, doesn't it? And if, they says, this should come to the governor's ear, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And it is this false storyline, this false narrative that is published. But it says this story was widely spread among the Jews as it is to this day. The third point I wanted to make is this. It comes in the book of James. Turn with me to James. We won't have much time with this. The third point is this. We must be aware that one of the most damaging factors of combating these alliances with the world is this. The dismantling of our faith convictions based on the Word of God by being allured to gratify our fleshly desires. Because it maligns, it maligns our loyalty to Christ. And this spiritual conflict is happening to every one of us who are believers. It is the war of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, as Paul talks about in Galatians 5, 17. And it never stops in this life. How does this battle, this lifelong battle, manifest itself in the believer's life? When they're losing? All you have to do is Look at James 4, verses 1 through 5. For he says, What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel among yourselves. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You see, James answers his first question by adding the second question. And he reveals the source of this losing to the flesh and not walking in the Spirit. It is because of our pleasures that wage war in our members. That word pleasure there is hedon. It, uh, from the Greek, it's what we get the word hedonism. It is the pursuit of pleasure, sensual self-indulgence. A hedonistic person is one devoted to self-indulgent pleasure, to feel good, to avoid pain. A hedonist puts self above and before all others. I'm sure you've heard the expression, we are the what? The me generation. Me first. And the wars and the battles that James is addressing here are happening where? Within the church fellowship. 
They're the, it's the church fellowship that is so desirous to have their pleasures satisfied. It's originating within ourselves. Sinful carnality of believers living contrary to God's redemption of them and his design for the church. This is spiritual warfare coming right to our houses, right to our lives, and it's being lost in this account. It's spilling over to other fellow believers. These passionate desires for worldly pleasures are the enticements of the devil and this pagan world. And it's intruding into our fellowships and fueling hostilities within the church. He says here, you lust. So you commit murder. You're envious. So you fight and quarrel. You ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. The Apostle Paul warned us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, particularly verse 4, men will become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Well, what does this have to do with us today as believers? It's the same age-old problem, isn't it? It goes right back to the fall of man where man has an appetite for something other than God and God's will for his life. And while we live in these mortal bodies, we as believers are all susceptible to the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we are exhorted over and over again to resist The temptations, they attract our bodies to sin. And they use those temptations to entice us, those carnal desires that we still have to battle inside us. And it produces pleasurable lust that urges us to satisfy. And we yield to them and we sin against God. These are deadly attractions, beloved. And we need to see them for what they are. They are deadly to our faith. And they won't be removed until the resurrection of our bodies. Though sin no longer controls us, it still contaminates our earthly existence. It inhibits our efforts to be fully set apart for God and obedient to his will in this life. That's why we're exhorted even by John in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in it. When we give in to this temptation, these pleasures, we become, listen, we become increasingly carnal in our thinking and in our actions. How far have we slid? It has a 
decisive and divisive effect on the life of Christ's church. And it fuels these warring factions within. The lust to satisfy these fleshly desires, it actually fortifies and drives us to want more and more pleasures so that we often will lust and envy for what everyone else has. And it causes quarreling. And it causes fighting. And it possesses us. We need to hear what James says here in verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We cannot be friends with this world and think that we are still friends with God. Friendship with the world equals enemy of God. Verse 5 says here, Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He, God, jealously desires the Spirit in which He has made to dwell in us. And that's why we're given the promise here in verse 6 that indeed He gives us a greater grace in understanding that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Well, what steps can we take? I think he gives them to us here in the subsequent verses. We're going to go through them very hurriedly here. The first thing that we need to do is so important. We need to submit to God, to line up under his lordship, to be like a soldier under the, if you will, the authority of his commanding officer, or as the centurion who met Jesus and asked for the healing of a slave. He understood whose authority he was under. Secondly, verse 7, we need to resist the devil. By resisting, it's not just trying to hold back. It is to oppose him. It is to take a stand against the wiles of the devil. And it is an urgent response of faith that we need to take. And he promises that he'll flee. Third, verse 8, we need to draw near to God. And we're promised that he will draw near to us. As Zechariah 1.3 says, return to me, declares the Lord, and I will return to you. Fourth, we need to cleanse our hands as sinners. That means we need to purify our actions. They need to be sanctified by the work of the Spirit and through the Word of God so that our actions and deeds are according to the will of God. Fifth, we need to purify our hearts, you double-minded, to make pure our motives, to have a single heart. As the psalmist said in Psalm 24, 3 through 5, have clean hands and a pure heart before our God. 
to do that, we must break our, our closeness to sin. There, there, not, there needs to be a repentance. We need to be miserable and mourn and weep. We need to be distressed in our hearts and grieved over the fact that we have allowed these things to enter into our lives. We need to repent. Just as the Republican, uh, the publican, not the Republican, Republicans need to as too, but just as the publican, the tax getter, when he came into the temple, all he could do is put his head down and beat his breath. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, that'll mean, as he says there in verse 10, we need to humble ourselves before our God. And we're promised that he will exalt us. Augustine said about this verse, if you ask me what is the first precept of the Christian religion, I will answer the first, the second, the third is humility before God. When we're humble before God, we'll stop speaking against one another. To speak against or judge another brother is to speak against the law, the law of God. And it judges the law of God. It's not being a doer of it. And he reminds us in verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. As believers in Jesus Christ, this one who is lawgiver and judge is the God who is for us. And if God be for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? We need, as the people of God, to combat the alliances that are in this world and live for God as he has commanded us. Amen.